It's their first response. It's not even their second response to attack me personally, to name call. The name calling is like ridiculous. I wonder where they learned that. That's so weird. Hmm. Gonna have to do some research on that. Maybe we'll get back to you next (laughs) week. We gotta address the suburban women problem because it's real. Welcome to the Suburban Women Problem, a podcast from Red, Wine, and Blue. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rachel Vindman. I'm Amanda Weinstein. And this is the Suburban Women Problem. It's pretty obvious the GOP has a suburban women problem, and we're here to talk about it. The news out of the Middle East continues to be sad and very hard to read. And the news out of the House of Representatives continues to be frustrating and hard to read. But in two weeks, we have an election that could determine the right to reproductive care for millions of Americans, not to mention book bans, what's taught in schools, and so many other important issues. The stakes are particularly high in Virginia and Ohio. So today I'll share my interview with Lily Franklin, a former teacher who's running for delegate in Virginia's 41st district. But before we get to that, how are you, Amanda? Actually, I kind of know how you are because I I want to talk to you and ask you about some of the um, DMs and, I don't know, other messages that you've been receiving because I want to talk about that. Yeah, so we have a very heated school board race right now on top of just, you know, my husband announcing he's running for the state Senate. So that's in there in the mix as well. It will never not sound ridiculous to say that you have a heated school board race right now. Right. I mean, I just like, so we have normalized the insanity and a heated school board race should be about whether or not there are athletics in school or if they all have to be after school or if they should build a new school in a town or it should not be the craziness that we have, but please continue. Okay. No, our school board race right now is do we want to build up our schools and our children or do we want to tear them all down and tear them apart? Mm -hmm. And you have uh, some people who just want to tear it all down and who have admitted to me, they just want to tear it all down. And I was like, sorry, we're not going to agree because I'm not into tearing our schools down because this is kind of important for our children. Let's build them up. And The response is personal attacks. It's their first go-to that they apparently try and find who my neighbors are. They take pictures of my car. They try and find out who my kids' teachers are to go talk to my kids' teachers. It gets so creepy how much they want to get into personal attacks, find out about all of my personal information. And then they want to tell me like, well, we really don't care about you. We just spend all our free time finding out who your neighbors are and talking to them. And like, well, then you kind of do care about me a little bit. This is unhinged. But again, back to my, my other point of like, this is not normal. This is not the way it should should not be normal. We have kind of normalized it, right? Like we, I mean, we haven't normalized it, but there's a degree to which we've accepted it, wouldn't wouldn't you say? We have. I think I do feel a little more confident where, you know, so one of the people supporting one of these controversial school board candidates went straight to on a public page talking about my daughter and people I didn't know jumped right in and said, no, that is out of line. It doesn't matter what you think you know or don't know. You should not talk about people's kids. So it was nice to see at least yeah. people really say like, don't do that, even though they dug their heels in and think, you know, they they think it's mm-hmm. interesting that they think that when you're in any kind of political spotlight, or if you even just put your opinion out there, that somehow that entitles them 
to your personal information yeah. and to spread your personal information. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think it just adds to the chaos and the ugliness we get everywhere at every level from school board, state to federal. And the ramifications are a lot of people don't want to run because who wants to invite that crazy into their life? Yeah. So you only get insane people. Only insane yeah, people I mean, can run for this stuff. Yeah. You get people who have more self-confidence and appetite for nonsense than I do. Um, and, and you know, that, that shouldn't be the way it is because running for school board, being on the school board should be low stakes. You just have to be willing to do the work and, you know, doing what takes, but it shouldn't be such a, a smear campaign or such an impact on your family's life, like, you know, in the scheme of things. And that's what they're making this. And, and also, you know, we've talked about it like every week for, I don't know how many weeks, but um, in Ohio, you have a, a, a question on the ballot um, about reproductive rights. And you also have an adoptive son, uh, an adopted son rather. And you, you, you shared a message with our group chat that you received. Can you, can you read that to us? Yeah. So a lot of the pro-life, again, like I am vocal that I think we need to be protecting women's lives and that I think that this issue one in protecting reproductive freedom is about lives of women and even babies. And the data is there, right? We know that states that ban abortions have higher maternal mortality. They also have higher infant mortality. Mm-hmm. And this just kind of like blows the minds of some pro-life people that this can even be true. And it is. Mm-hmm. And so the only comeback they can have is, well, why do you, why did you adopt a son? Like that must be something that we don't understand. Like how can someone who is supporting reproductive freedom also be supporting, you know, have a, an adopted son. And they bring that right into it as if, first of all, I don't really see the connection that they do, but it also kind of blows their mind and they don't believe like, well, actually I was raised to be pro-life. I just also believe that whatever my beliefs are, shouldn't be mandated on other people. And my view of pro-life might be slightly different than yours is on pro-life because I actually look to the research and data, mm-hmm. but regardless, like there's no reason to bring my son or his birth mother into this or my family. Like that's just not part of issue one. You can read the language, whether it's on the ballot or the actual language, nothing about that language says anything about my adopted son. There's no reason to bring that into an argument, but I've noticed time and time again, it's their first response. It's not even their second response to attack me personally, to attack my children, to name call. The name calling is like ridiculous. All of the things that I have been called lately. I wonder where they learned that. That's so weird because I mean, who, who could have like really pointed to name calling and belittling people? Going to have to do some research on that. Maybe we'll get back to you next (laughs) week. But I mean, but it's, it was normalized. It was normalized from 2016 or it was the 2015. I don't know when Trump announced his candidacy, I, I guess 2015 to now that that is an acceptable way to treat your political opponents. And to that end, we saw this last week. I mean, look, I'm glad that Jim Jordan didn't win the speakership. But um, the part I want to talk about now of this, which is, you know, is totally segues from what you were saying and about your your personal experience, is that some of the people who Republicans, House Republicans who voted against Jim Jordan being the speaker, received death threats from the MAGAs out there 
they received death threats. And, and their family did. Not even just that. Yeah, like, yeah. reaching out to and their, their family. family. Yeah. It's like, first of all, death threats, mm-hmm. bad for regardless of who it is. But like, reaching out to like someone's wife to threaten them is just, I mean, Rachel, I know you know a lot about that as well. Well, yeah, I actually wrote about it on Substack because, and I kind of tongue in cheek as if like one of these people, spouses was coming over to my house and kind of my imaginary conversation that I would have with them. I would be remiss if I were to host someone to not bring up that this is entirely predictable. Everyone on the Republican side at this point is only protected as long as they stay in the confines of the tribe. And that means lockstep, Mm -hmm. exactly what they want. Yep. Useful idiots, whatever term (laughs) you want to use, but they are only useful as long as they do that. The moment that they take one step outside the circle or even look outside the circle, it's all over. You're dead to them. That's absolutely right. They're valued for their use to them. And once that use goes away, you are dead to them and they will make sure you know they're dead to them or they want you dead to mm-hmm. them. When it's you receiving the death threats, you take it seriously, mm-hmm. but it, it's meant to intimidate and it does. I think it absolutely serves its purpose that people will be less willing to go against the grain because you know what kind of price do they have to pay? And I think it's interesting. So man, so we were talking about Paul Ryan made an interesting point about all of the chaos going on with this speaker vote that he basically said, what's wrong with the Republican Party is it's populism untethered to principles. And it's really a party of cult personality populism, which is right. Basically saying that they have no set of real principles that they follow, which leads to no idea of what the actual problems of people are, which means they have no idea what actual policies should be. And I think it's kind of funny that, yeah, this is all the chaos you see when you do have a party that's just cult personality populism. I'm going to hurt myself. Um, rolling my eyes this much. It's going to cause permanent injury. (laughs) I just, this is Paul Ryan, guys. Paul Ryan. I'm going to, from his lofty seat in the Senate, looking down on the House, telling them everything they're doing wrong, which is exactly what Paul Ryan believes. But Paul Ryan believes it. He was, I mean, honestly, he was kind of an OG guy in this way. Um, You know, like he was one of the first people to believe it. But now, it's one thing if you have like some outliers doing it and they can be like, I'm a libertarian and you know, they can do this. But then when you have them all doing it, it creates <laughs> like chaos becomes the everyday norm, not just like a person coming in to give, you know, a speech on the Senate or house floor and kind of like, okay, okay, Paul, we, we heard you enough. Now it's like what everyone is doing. And again, I think they do it because it's like this weird, like, I'm loyal. Also, listen to my sycophantic speech, which, by the way, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about uh, <laughs> Elise Stefanik's speech last week. I mean, girl, like just practice, maybe in front of a mirror, you can just record yourself on your phone. I don't know. I mean, just maybe something, but it was pretty bad. Wait, I missed this. I missed this speech. What right. happened? I mean, it was just so bad. And can I just say the Democrats are so united and their speeches last week and they're nominating Hakeem Jeffries. We're united behind actual principles, solving actual policies for people. Yeah. No, I mean, they're stating things, not being like, Oh, 
He was a, I mean, this is what they said about Jim Jordan two or three days in a row. He was a wrestler, wrestling coach and a wrestler. So he'll take it to the mats. <laughs> that's his big, that's his big policy stance. We're going to take it to the mats. Like, okay. I don't fix yeah. inflation. <laughs> now, can I just say my, my father was a football coach and um, both my brothers have coached. They both have actually coached wrestling as well. And, and I loved my father and I love both my brothers. I don't think any of that experience qualifies them to serve in Congress, but we have a lot of coaches. So Tom Emmer, who, who appears to be, except for the inconvenient fact that he um, did not buy into the big lie and he was an election denier. He is like pretty loyal Republican and he might be like the leading candidate when they meet together to see who's going to be the leading candidate for, I guess, this week's speaker vote. And he also was a coach. And I was like, is everyone a coach? I am a little confused by this. But um, and again, I'm not sliding coaches at all by any stretch of the imagination. It's just a, a weird space we find ourselves in. Yeah, especially since they seem to be incapable of like coaching their own people of how do you know vote for yeah, yeah, like, like get something done. Like seems like you could use a yeah. little coaching, but you'd you maybe mm-hmm. may maybe they're not the best. And leadership, all those things that I think sports are excellent for. And you know that coaches really kind of bring those those personality traits out of people. And yet we have seemed to have found the coaches that don't do that. And we're electing them. We're trying to elect them to some of the most significant positions in Congress. I know, but they seem to be very good at wanting to coach us on what we should do and what we should think and how we should parent, what books we should or shouldn't read, what parts of history we should talk about or not talk about. All those things. But I also think it's kind of interesting are the coaching that Moms for Liberty gets from the tons of men that were released from all of their little internal chats that they got mm-hmm, all up on mm-hmm. a website. Oh, that is juicy yes. with a glass of wine. It takes very juicy time. and interesting. But it's a lot of men. Yes. Like I thought this was moms for liberty. They're pulling the strings. It's just moms for liberty doing what men tell them to. Cool. That sounds like lots of liberty to me. Um, I was telling my husband about this. He was traveling last week, but um, I, I saw it and I sent it to him and we were discussing it. And I mean, I guess he was kind of remarking on the fact that I wouldn't do that even if he asked me. And I was like, yeah, accurate. It's true. <laughs> um, and also, I, I thought that their analysis, it kind of made me think, like, who's your audience? Is your audience like men? Because the the pulling the strings and the things they were suggesting weren't, I didn't think, very compelling for women. And they were missing the mark. Right. Look at the PTO boards. The PTO boards are mostly women Mm -hmm. by far. The people in the schools, mostly women. I have noticed more dads being involved, which is great dads. I'm proud of you. However, it's still mostly women. Mm -hmm. And then when I see, you know, our contentious school board race, all of the book banner, you know, extremists, defunding the schools, all of that, all men. Yeah. They're all men who want to sit up there in the school board and tell a bunch of moms what they should be thinking about their schools as if we don't already know because we're Mm -hmm. in there all the time or Mm -hmm. we're talking to our teachers. It gets a little frustrating. Also, ladies, we need more ladies to run. But that's the hard part. We don't have time. It is. Again, I think it goes back to the way we're treating people. I'll never forget last year um, when I was talking to some school board, former school board members in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and on one hand, I was so sad that this woman I was talking to had just wrapped up her time and she was not running for re-election. On the other hand, 
I was so happy for her because she was getting rid of so much chaos and turmoil and stress in her life. And, you know, it's like, you want to do something, but you don't want to go back into it. This is why I what I always say when people are like, Oh, Alex should run for office, or I should run for office. I'm like, I'm not interested in that. And I appreciate everyone who does run. But um, it is just like, I feel like I've, I've done that to a point, And I don't want to invite that into my life. Although I think there are many other ways that we can all be active and make a difference. And I know never say never, but uh, right now I'm saying never. <laughs> and that doesn't mean it's the only way, but I mean, you know, we all talk, we talk about all the roles we can fill. And, um, you know, some of these people, when you do have someone who's willing to run, especially for school board or something where, you know, it's going to be very personal attacks, like what you have detailed, uh, Amanda, but I think that's when we really need to show our support the most. Those are the people that we need to support because they're going out in the community and shopping at the grocery store and Target and wherever and and they're noticed. And, mm-hmm. you know, we need to, to give them support and support them in whatever way we can, which is, you know, both financially and then just, you know, moral support and helping uh, in their campaigns. And that is really meaningful work. Agree. There's a lot of ways that we can help. And one way that I know we can help that Red Red Wine and Blue has been working on is you can sign a petition to tell Scholastic that they should stop relegating diverse books. Boy, this is so bad. I know Amanda Gorman said something really good. I actually got to talk with Ken Harbaugh about this, that Amanda Gorman said, like, this is a new separate but equal that we're trying to pretend like, hey, you can have, you know, this separate section and it's equal if you want it. And if you don't want it, it's in this separate section, right? We already know this. Separate isn't equal. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't have a separate section for books and somehow pretend that you're not denigrating what those books are talking about, which in some cases, Ruby Bridges. I'm sorry. There's no scenario where Ruby Bridges should be in a different category. There's no scenario where any of these books should be in a different category. And it's telling our kids that this is somehow shameful or something they shouldn't talk about or that being different is Mm -hmm. bad. Yeah. And just if you haven't heard the news, um, what Amanda's talking about is Scholastic. You know, everyone knows Scholastic. They are separating their, it's not just LGBTQ plus books. It's it's other books that Mm -hmm. they're literally making a separate section. And I mean, I personally don't care for a lot of genres of books. I'm not much of a sci-fi or fantasy person, but even I don't think they should be in a separate category just to make my browsing easier to find something that I enjoy. <laughs> I mean, it is really unfortunate. So yeah, so you can, in the show notes, you can see where you can um, sign that sign that petition for us. Well, I am really excited. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to have my interview with Lily Franklin, who is exciting and lovely. I can't wait for you to listen. With less than one week until election day, it's all hands on deck. We need every single one of you doing what you do best, talking to your friends and family about voting. Next week, we're holding a virtual event with one of our all-time favorite women, Heather Cox Richardson, to talk about what's on the line in 2023 and why it matters for 2024. For more information and to RSVP for this event, you can go to redwine.blue or click the link in the show notes. 
This week, I'm talking to Lily Franklin, who's running for delegate in Virginia's new 41st district. Hi, Lily. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. There are a lot of important elections across the country this year, but things are especially high stakes in Virginia. So I'd love to start by asking you why this upcoming election is so important in Virginia. Yeah, I think a lot of people have been looking at Virginia to see what happens. I think when we turn, when Glenn Youngkin won in 2021, a lot of people were upset and confused as what was happening here. But I think this year, the stakes in Virginia are just even higher since we've already seen what is happening across the nation since the Dobbs decision last year. I mean, Virginia is the last state in the South that is still allows abortion and reproductive health care. And so, I mean, that's at stake. I think public education is another one. We've heard from a number of of Republican opponents that um, are looking at different measures that would practically defund public education here in Virginia. And so I I think there are just so many important issues this year on the line, but uh, those would definitely be the top two. Yeah. um, You know, I was just did an event last night and there was someone from Virginia and, you know, just really discussing that, Abortion is really what's on the ballot in so many ways in Virginia, um, reproductive rights, I should say, but really is what's on on the ballot in Virginia because Governor Youngkin has been very open that if he gets both houses um, of the Virginia Assembly, he plans on restricting reproductive rights first thing. So I think that, you know, that's kind of the subtext of what you're voting on, but there are a lot of other factors at play. You know, I lived in Virginia in 2021 when Glenn Youngkin won his race for governor, and he did the whole focusing on education and parents' rights. And since then, he's just continued to do it to push an extremist Virginia. What is at stake with public education in Virginia this year with this election? Yeah, so I'm a former teacher. I taught high school geometry. Uh, when I first started, uh, I also, after that, I worked for Delegate Sam Rasool in the legislature. So mm-hmm. um, I saw how it was as a teacher and then transitioned to what, what happened in the state government, you know, and I'll, I'll never forget, you know, going into the General Assembly for the first time and seeing that um, we could go into the supply closet as legislative staff and get whatever we needed. It was essentially just a taxpayer funded staples. Um, I could get anything I needed, no questions asked. And then I think back to when I was a teacher and I had to fight for the markers I needed to use on the whiteboard. And I was a math teacher. So that meant I was writing quite a bit on the whiteboard. Uh, And so for me, it's really about equity and distribution of resources. Uh, We're talking about Virginia's budget here. Uh, Last year, we had a $5 billion surplus and that's billion with a B. Uh, And so we have the resources here in Virginia to create a world education system. Um, We just have to make that choice. And I think what we've seen is that there's a lot of entities that don't want to invest in in public education. And um, and our kids are affected by that, our students, our teachers, and our parents. And so until we start prioritizing education, um, we are going to continue to leave people behind. I think that's maybe part of the problem when you elect someone who is um, a private equity guru, that's great that he delivered for his investors, but that's not what government is. So having a $5 billion surplus does no one any good. He is only using it for political purposes to further Glenn Youngkin. 
And we can just expect more of that if we continue to elect people who do not care about the people they are representing and governing. I, I love that you were a teacher. Um, you were actually, you worked for Teach for America, as I understand, correct? Mm-hmm, correct, I was. That's so exciting. What a great program that is. What has been your perspective, bringing that perspective and the importance? I mean, you, you shared the, uh, some of that already, but you know, as someone who's been in the classroom, what would you like to see happen in Richmond that is not happening right now? I think we have seen a lot of entities trying to push politics into the classroom. And when Mm -hmm. we do that, everyone suffers, the kids, the parents, the teachers. I mean, I was a math teacher, as I I said earlier, and most days I struggled to get my students to understand the Pythagorean theorem and things along those lines. You know, I couldn't even thought. Guilty. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I couldn't have even pushed a political agenda, even if I wanted to. And so, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, as a teacher, I realized that when my parents were involved, when the community members were involved, when we had resources around these students, uh, our students thrived. The fact of the matter is most parents in my district and many places across Virginia are working two and three jobs to make ends meet. And so mm-hmm. when we can, we are right now enacting a lot of piecemeal legislation, but at the end of the day, we're not really solving any of the problems in schools. And so we have to make sure we close uh, critical funding gaps and that we that we continue to to fight for resources for schools instead of where we see a lot of people wanting to pull those resources out of schools. Yeah. So we also talked about abortion and reproductive rights. Um, you know, in, in Ohio, it's literally on the ballot. I think in Virginia, it's like kind of the subtext, but it's still on the ballot. Um, with that being said, I don't know that all voters are completely informed on this, um, if they, uh, you know, sort of understand that, you know, Glenn Ann can really wants to push a 15 week ban on abortion. What are you hearing from your constituents about this or the people, I guess you hope to be your constituents, the people who will be voting for you? What, what are you hearing? This is definitely a priority for the people in my district. So I'm in Southwest Virginia, so definitely a more Mm -hmm. rural suburban area of Virginia. And I think a lot of people, when they saw this district, they thought that this might not be a priority, but people care about this. I mean, I talked to a lot of women who are older and maybe a little bit more conservative, but they remember what it was like in a pre-Roe era. They remember their friends dying Mm -hmm. of sepsis. And while this isn't related exactly to Roe, they remember that they had to ask their husband's permission for birth control. And there's just a lot of women who don't want to go backwards. And so this is a priority Mm -hmm. for them. I also like to point out that the 41st district is basically the front lines for this battle of reproductive health care. In this region sits the westernmost Planned Parenthood facility that's located in Roanoke. Um, And people have been having to drive all across the South in order to get to this facility. Back in May, they said 28% of their clientele have to cross state lines in order to seek services. Wow. Yeah. I mean, coming all the way from Mississippi, um, Kentucky, Tennessee, all of the surrounding areas, because it's the closest Planned Parenthood and and it's a a Mm well-trusted brand. And so people know that they're going to get yeah. services. Yeah. And, you know, and, and since then, they've only become more overwhelmed in their need for for more people coming across. Mm-hmm. And so keeping Virginia open is the same as keeping up keeping a beacon of hope uh, for these young women. 
that have to come mm-hmm. into our district. Mm-hmm. And so we just have to make sure that we remember that not only are we fighting for Virginia and the 4 million women that live here, but for the 32 million women that are in the South as well. Wow. That's a lot to, bur- uh, you know, uh, to shoulder a big burden. And I, I appreciate that you, you know, sharing that story because I think it's really important that we talk about it a lot on the podcast and we just, you know, talk about it in general, but the number of women who do not have access to reproductive health care and there's still a need and they will try to seek it other places, but it's still encroaching. Can you imagine driving Mississippi to Virginia to get the health care that you need? And that's the closest place you can go um, and trying to further restrict it. And we know that whenever you put those parameters, those boundaries when that a lot of people can't afford to go or they don't know how to go. I mean, there, there's a lot of, lot of issues um, at, at in play there that will prevent people from getting the care they need. But we have definitely not minimized the need. We've just minimized the access. And it's, it's a, you know, a huge tragedy. I hope that the women and the voters of Virginia, at least you know, until we can come up with a more permanent solution, you know, keep that, um, that clinic and that possibility alive. Yeah. And I just think that we see also with more restrictions, we see, we're seeing a lot more doctors wanting to leave the field. And, you know, in this district, there is a a year long wait list to get in to see an OBGYN. And so um, that we can't have people leaving these rural localities. There's still other services that are preventative in nature that women need as well. No, absolutely. Yeah, when I was reading your um, your campaign page and about you, um, I was really struck by kind of the letter that you wrote and um, talking about really wanting to take care of the constituents of the forty first district from all aspects of life. And I thought that was really great. We talk about paid family and medical leave a lot on on this podcast, but can you speak more to a family friendly economy and why that is such a priority for you? Yeah. So I grew up in a working class family. You know, I watched my parents struggle to make ends meet uh, while they dealt with complex substance abuse disorders. You know, I worked several jobs to pay my way through college. I mean, I'm currently working three jobs. And so these experiences really gave me the framework on how I approach everything from education to healthcare to taxes, uh, specifically on the family-friendly economy, I think that we need to be doing more in understanding how the policies we enact infect families in the area. And if we want Virginia to be a place that people want to raise a family, then we need to be thinking about what does it mean to succeed as a a child? What does it mean to succeed as a a working family? What does it mean to retire with dignity? Um, And I think Part of that is just from the struggles that that I dealt with. You know, I felt like I, there were so many cracks in the system, but also I think it's because I have a long-term generations of my family living here. My brother just had twins, him and his fiance, and then my grandparents who were in their 90s. And so we all live in this region. And so I really want to think about a full process of what it really means to thrive and make sure that families have the tools that they need. I love that. And I have to say, you know, I'm, what we hear so much is that people feel left behind. They feel that they can't. One of the things that struck me is, you know, 
being able to stay in the area where they want to live, but have a good paying job. And that is critical. I think that is critical in so many rural places in the United States. And I love that you are addressing it. I don't hear many politicians address it. I think because it's a very complicated issue and they're afraid to talk about it because it's going to open maybe a can of worms. But I, I love that you are and this is really the future, I think, of progressives in the United States. And if we're ever going to solve problems, first, we have to acknowledge them and talk about them. So I just, I think it's absolutely fabulous. Why is it important for young young women like yourself to run for office? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a couple of factors in play. One of the important things that we always talk about is you can't be what you can't see. Um, if I'm elected, I'd be the mm-hmm. first woman to woman Democratic woman representing Southwest Virginia in my lifetime. One of the local news organizations actually just published a story about this that Southwest Virginia used to lead the way in electing women, but over the past couple of decades we've fallen behind. And there's actually two other women that are running on in the Senate um, on, on the Democratic ballot that are running to be the first woman of color to represent Southwest Virginia. And their districts overlap with mine. And so I think part of it is that if you don't see that this is a possibility then it's something that that would hold you back in wanting to uh, run. But I also think that in a district like mine, it's important because I have a college campus. And so there's a lot of young people thinking about what their future is going to look like. And for them to see that young women are able to run for office and succeed and whatever that means, um, it will encourage more women to want to get involved in the process. Very well said. What's something that you'd like to tell our listeners who aren't in Virginia? Are there any lessons that you've learned that can be applied in other states or to elections in other states? I think the biggest one is to not count out your rural areas. What we saw in 2021 here in Virginia is a divestment in rural Virginia, and it allowed the GOP to run up numbers in the rural places. And unfortunately, our liberal centers couldn't hold the the state blue because of that. And so, you know, when I'm out knocking doors right now, I'm going down back roads, the gravel roads. It's the first time that voter has ever experienced anyone that would knock on their door. Um, and, And what I find is that they not only want it somebody to hear them. And after I've listened to them, they're supporting me, but we're also bringing someone into the fold. And so that voter that votes for me this year is going to be voting for Senator Tim Kaine next year and Joe Biden and then whoever's our governor candidate in the future. And so if we really want to close the margins uh, across the United States, we really need to make sure we're fighting in all zip codes. Um, and, and I think that's probably been my, my top takeaway. I love it. Well, It's been really great talking today, and I'm so glad that you joined us. But before we let you go, we are going to do some rapid-fire questions. Are you ready? Yes, hopefully. Okay. (laughs) What's your favorite part about being a dog mom? I think it's being able to always have someone to come home to that's really excited to be there. It doesn't matter how my day is. I always have the same reaction, and she just runs up to me every every evening when I come in. I know. It is a great feeling. As the... I share a house with two other humans and they don't always even acknowledge when I come home. So, but the dogs always do. I mean, they ask me why I like the dogs more. I'm like, I'm not saying I like them more, but I mean, they're okay. And someone's making themselves themselves known. Okay. That's right on cue. Um, if you could be a character in any TV show, what would it be? Um, ooh, 
That one's a tough one for me. Um, probably I'd want to be in one of like the NCIS shows or something yeah. like that, you know? Yeah. Like investigating. Yeah. Yes. Something like that. Perfect. So it sounds like your family has been really supportive of your campaign. What would you say to parents whose child makes the, like, some might say crazy decision to run for office? Uh, it definitely is a little bit of a crazy decision, but I would say <laughs> the top advice would be that to just be supportive in their decision. There is no shortage of people that will tell you that you did something wrong in a campaign. <laughs> Let me tell you, but there is a shortage of people that tell you that you're doing well and you're doing the right thing and to keep on going. And so that's really, my family has been really supportive of me and they remind me why I got into this fight and keep me balanced. And at the end of the day, they don't care if I win or lose this election. They just care about my personal health and my personal well-being. And so that's really, I think, the role that uh, family holds in campaigns. We should all be so lucky to have people like that in our lives. Where can listeners go to find out more about you and your campaign? So they can go online to our website at lilyfordelegate.com. And that's L-I-L-Y-F-O-R delegate.com. And you can find out all ways you can get involved and, and learn more about the story and what we're doing down here in the 41st. Well, you have a really user-friendly website. I love that it's like so clear. I wish all campaigns did it like that because it's like you can order a sign, you can host an event. It's just all your choices. And it's it's a great, it's a, a really great site. But Lily, thank you so much for joining us today. It has been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you taking time to interview me and, and learn more about this district and, and fighting here in Virginia. Welcome back, everyone. Rachel, I loved your interview with Lily Franklin. I loved that she is this young and exciting candidate who is really encouraging that other young women should be in government. And let me be clear, other young women should be in government. These are important voices for us all to hear. I couldn't agree more. We hear a lot, I mean, unless you've been under a rock, about the age of some of the candidates in the upcoming presidential election next year. But Lily and many like her are running. And instead of just complaining, we need to talk about these candidates. We need to support these candidates. We need to support them with our time and treasure. If you want new, fresh ideas, you're going to have to encourage these people to run, younger people to run, and you are going to have to do it with your dollars and with your work. So, I mean, you can't just complain if you want to be part of the solution. The solution is really quite easy, but I just thought she was so exciting. Her ideas are exciting. She wants good schools for children. She wants- Wait, she doesn't want to tear them all down? Yeah, no, I know. Wow, crazy. Uh, and <laughs> she wants good paying jobs, local jobs for people to be able to live. And then you know, she talks about retirees being able to retire with dignity in their communities near their families and all this in a rural area. And that means investment in the area. I know you're doing a lot of work and a lot of research on rural areas in America. Mm -hmm. And her ideas are so powerful. I am rooting so hard for Lily and for so many like her who are really doing work that just does not get highlighted enough. Well, 
We like to end on a highlight of Toast to Joy, but I think the interview with Lily is also a, a highlight and a happy thing. But nevertheless, we will have our Toast to Joy. Amanda, what is yours this week? All right. So my Toast to Joy is to, I'm just going to, you're going to have to let me like totally geek out right now. Okay. And I was at a conference and I get to see a lot of really exciting research that really matters to people. And there was one piece of research that is my favorite from Vanessa Fry, who evaluated a program in Boise, where they built permanent housing for homeless people that were the most at risk. Hmm. And it wasn't temporary housing. It was the most at risk people uh, in that community who have been homeless for a long time in and out of, in some case, jail, in and out of hospitals in some cases. And it was just, here's housing, no strings attached. There's no time limit. You can stay here as long as you need to stay here. Hmm. And they did this on the idea that this is going to save money because they have kind of the most basic of needs met housing. And she had this amazing graph where she showed it actually saved the money by building this very gorgeous housing unit right near public transportation. They had fewer hospital visits, fewer emergency re- visits. They had fewer run-ins with the law, fewer times that they were in jail and they had to pay for that. It was just really cool research to see that investing in even the most marginalized people especially the most marginalized people had a really big cost savings and had this economic benefit, right? So yes, there's also a moral piece to this too, but she was able to show people, even if you're, you know, wherever you are on the morals and principles, right? It actually has a cost savings and this will save us money by providing people housing that just simply need housing. And so my toast to joy was to Vanessa Fry and all this amazing research uh, that I got to see at this conference that is real policies that can really help people that need it and are great for our economy and great for people. That is exciting. I think that's really, that's really cool. exciting. Um, I mean, this seems rather intuitive, but it's it's important to have research and data behind anything that seems intuitive because it doesn't always go that way. But I mean, I think, you know, it can help win over people when you present them with the information. And I love it because I don't know if I could convince people to have morals and principles, but I feel like I can convince them when it is a good economic decision, if I can't convince you on the morals and principles. Yes. All right, Rachel, what is your toast to joy? My toast to joy this week is to President Biden's speech last week. I thought it was the best speech of his presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, it was strong and direct. He talked about the importance of supporting democracy, also of pushing back against um, the evil forces of terrorism and authoritarianism. I mean, here he is, he he flies to Israel, comes back, gives a speech. I mean, this is a man that we're told is super frail and, you know, senile. And he, I was exhausted just thinking about all the things he did last (laughs) week. And I only sat at home. So, um, I just did a Girl Scout camp and it made me exhausted for the entire next day. (laughs) Uh, Fair. So in any event, my my toast is to President Biden. And I hope that little glimpses, little glimpses that people can see, he is the choice going forward. I know he might not be everyone's first choice for, you know, on both sides, you know, like there may be someone that you want more. But he is a real leader and the experience that he has matters right now. And I love, you know, we have someone with the experience of him and then we have people like Lily Franklin who are running, who are young. And I think that bodes so well for our country that we have 
so many on each side of the spectrum who are willing to come together in this moment to do what it takes to hopefully, you know, pull us out of kind of the craziness and the chaos where we are. I love that. Diversity is our strength, not our weakness. It is. It really, really is. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're only two weeks away from the election, so it's important to make sure that you and everyone you know has a plan to vote. If you want some help keeping track of who you've talked to about voting, Red, Wine, and Blue has a fun online tool called Rally Your Squad. To sign up, you can text the word RALLY, R-A-L-L-Y, to 59868. Thanks again, and we'll see you again next week on another episode of The Suburban Women Problem. The Suburban Women Problem was created by Red, Wine, and Blue. Our producer and editor is Amy Thorstenson, our project manager is Lindsay Quist, and our editorial assistant is Abigail Martin. For more information about upcoming events and trainings, or to learn more about Red, Wine, and Blue, follow us on social media or at www.redwine.blue.